Welcome to the 40 Under 40 podcast with your hosts, Caitlin Cromit and AJ McQuarrie. They are two entrepreneurs who speak to other entrepreneurs under the age of 40, so you can learn from their successes and failures along their journeys of building businesses. 40 Under 40 podcast hopes to educate, motivate, and inspire people to pursue their dreams of starting a business, regardless of age. And now, here are your hosts, Caitlin and AJ. Welcome back to the 40 Under 40 podcast, everyone. Yes, welcome back. So excited. How's everyone doing? (laughs) I wish we could hear people respond because that's just a (laughs) rhetorical question. I know. Are they even um, responding in their heads? I don't know. Yeah, you know, we're trying to keep it conversational. We're well, Caitlin, you just got married, so. Oh, my God. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, for Thanks for the applause. Thanks, AJ. It was so fun to have you there. Great time. Yeah, I feel like so I'm still fun. recovering, but it was so much fun. Have you been asked this a lot? Like, is married, married life different? I mean, it's been, oh, it's almost been one week. Oh my God. <laughs> it's been six days and Does everything feel feels the same. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're really excited today because we're actually having, do you remember? This is the guy that inspired this podcast, yeah. this entire podcast. He basically was like, y'all need a podcast. And we were like, okay. And so then Let's we- Let's do it. <laughs> Yeah, we're really excited to have Joel Block on today. He's a futurist. We'll hear about what that means. Longtime venture capitalist and hedge fund manager. And our friend <laughs> and kind of like a mentor to both. Yeah, of us. he's kind of been a mentor. He's he lives in a Shark Tank like world. Ooh. So hey, were you on Shark Tank, AJ? I was on the Canadian version. It's called Dragon's Den. It was a really cool experience. But yeah. Okay, so the fake Shark Tank. No, it was actually, it was before Shark Tank. Oh, so Canada started it. All right. Uh, Anyway, he was initially a professional blackjack player, counting cards and beating casinos in Las Vegas. Cool. He later built and sold his publishing company to a Fortune 500. Joel's cage rattling, right? Joel's cage rattling keynotes expose Wall Street insights and the inside track on high velocity innovation, empowering businesses to predict and prepare for their futures. Wow. I'm excited just from that intro. I know, right? Let's bring him on. Joel, welcome. Welcome. We just wanted to say that we thank you so much because you basically inspired us to begin this podcast to begin with so you did you're the reason it exists well you know you listen you you guys uh you know i'm i'm kind of an old fogey you know (laughs) compared to you guys when i think when i first met caitlin you were probably i was probably three times older now now i'm closer to two times older (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) so somehow another if i keep going you'll catch up to me i don't know exactly i think think so That's how that but, works. <laughs> um, you know, but I've, I've told a lot of people, you know, I, I mean, I, I try to do a lot of leading edge stuff and I've shared with a lot of people and you two are among the few people that really listen. I mean, a lot of, I, what I find is that a lot of people, 40, 45, 50, they're going like, you know, Joel, I don't really want to do the new shit. Would you just please let me, let me have some business so I can kind of mm-hmm. get through my day. And, and, and it's kind of not like it just kind of doesn't work that way. It's like right. you got to put in the work and they're going like, well, I already did the work 20 years ago. Well, the thing mm-hmm. is, you didn't do smart work that's paying off 20 years later. 
Exactly. You know, yeah. So smart work and, and the podcast is smart work because you're building a brand, you're building a following and you're letting people understand who you are and kind of you're putting your thought leadership in the world. And, and that's how you build a, a, something. That's uh, how you be smart. It's crazy how it's elevated us just by consistently posting. People are like, oh my God, you're doing so well. You're killing it. It's like, we're just posted, pod, we're just posted podcasts, folks. <laughs> you know what? Uh, but, but, you know, think about how many people don't do that. I mean, there's, there's something probably like a million podcasts out there. Uh, less than 10% of them get to 10 episodes. And, and then the rest of them. Look at kinda, us. Yeah, it's really the numbers. We're beating are really, the odds. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you guys are you guys are so far ahead of the odds. Las Vegas would be losing money on you right and left. <laughs> I love it. OK, well, enough about us. Joel Block, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome. We, we are really excited to have you here today because we obviously have learned so much from you. We continue to learn from you. And so we want to share your wisdom with all of our listeners. Um, but why don't you just, if you could start out just telling us like, what was your first step into entrepreneurship into starting your own company? Let's, let's take it back. Well, you know, somebody asked me a similar question in the last couple of months and it reminded me of something that I had kind of forgotten about. Um, not my first entrepreneurial business, but uh, I've always been entrepreneurial, even since I was little. And, and I did my first entrepreneurial deal. I did my first deal when I was nine years old. I, I, I mean, I remember I was nice. either eight or nine, you know, and, um, and me, I was me and another kid. No, listen, you won't believe this. Me and another kid bought a dirt bike or a mini bike or some kind of like a motorized thing off of another kid for five bucks when we were, when we were like eight or nine years old. And we brought it to the to the friend's house, the, the guy that went in on it with me. And his dad helped us to refurbish it and put it back together. And we ended up selling it to a, to a different kid for $10. And it's like, I didn't really that understand. I, I didn't really understand what happened. But what I knew is that money came out of thin air. I, I didn't really understand why that happened. But we bought it for five and we sold it for 10 and we doubled our money. And it was like the most amazing thing that ever happened. And, and I've always been doing things and, and that just was my thing. And uh, I graduated college. I'm a, I'm a CPA by my training and I was assigned at Price Waterhouse. I mean, I, I did really cool work there, uh, a giant firm, but I was assigned to do the tax work of these 500 partnerships. So every day I had to do four, partner, four tax returns with, with a bunch of other people on the team. And I just hated doing the tax work. And I was really terrible at it. Uh, you know, and by the way, if I, if I, if I didn't quit the firm, I'd probably have been fired for sure. Cause I was really, really terrible <laughs> at work. But what I really liked, I loved reading the partnership agreements. And what I thought to myself was, I don't want to be a tax return preparer. I want to be a deal maker like these guys. And I mean, they're like, they're making a lot of money and they're doing, you know, and so I, I quit the firm and, and in, uh, you know, I was about 24, 25, I started what became really my serious business which was my real estate syndication firm. And we, wow. you know, another guy, you know, we tied up a building and we cold called a bunch of doctors and we asked a bunch of people to give us 7,500 bucks a piece. And we got 22 people to give us 7,500 bucks. And so we got $165,000 and we went and bought our first little apartment building. Oh my wow. gosh. Okay. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that, that's, that's a good observation. I, I, I do make it sound easy and nothing, nothing serious is easy. But uh, but it's doable, and nothing simple, you know, is really that great. But um, 
So that was the beginning of your first investment firm. That was, that was my, that was my first really, really serious deal. And then we bought a shopping center. We raised a bunch of money and then we did something else. And in my career, I've raised probably a hundred million dollars for different kinds of deals. Oh my gosh. Including $10 million for this venture that me and another guy in 1990, uh, I, I started in 1986 with the real estate stuff that I'm describing. And then the market kind of fizzled out. I mean, interest rates kind of skyrocketed and the whole real estate business kind of fell apart in 1990. So I, I meet this other guy and the guy says, hey, can you help me learn the stock market? Like, because I was day trading the stock market. And I go, oh yeah, I love the stock market. Happy to help. So I, I, I said, listen, here's some stocks that I like. Why don't you just keep track of them? Look in the newspaper every day. And that's how you learn the stock market. Now for you young people, you're, you're thinking like, why would you look in the newspaper? What the? <laughs> What's a old, newspaper? That's Just how kidding. old people used to do it. You know, as we used to get the newspaper every day. And and but I'm going to tell you, this is the beginning of, of where your life kind of where your journey begins. Is that we, uh, you know, I, I give them these stocks to follow, and about I don't know a week later, the guy sends me a fax, and in 1990, fax was kind of starting to be a thing, and it had my stocks down the side. The, the ones that I had picked and the prices for those stocks right next to them. And it's like, wow, this is kind of a cool thing. And then I get it a second day and then a third day and I call the guy up and I go, this is amazing. Instead of looking at 11,000 stocks in the newspaper, you, you just got my exact stocks. How did you do it? Like, what is this? He goes, oh, I just had the computer uh, search through and, and figure this out and produce this little report. And I go, that's amazing. Uh, do you think you could make a lot of these? He says, oh yeah, we can make many as you want. You just string the computers together and make as many as you want. I said, this is a business. Everybody in, in America is going to want to have this special report. Right. I said, I, I can raise some money and make this happen. I said, let's let's do this. And so sure enough, he starts working on it. And and I went out and, and I'm a storyteller. That's part of raising money is you got to be a storyteller. Uh, funny enough, now we're all in the National Speakers Association telling right. stories because that's what <laughs> speakers are. We're professional storytellers. Exactly. Yeah. But raising money is all about telling stories, you know. And so I went out and I told my story to everybody who would listen, and I succeeded in raising ten million dollars from somebody who really, really liked my story. I guess they really, really, really liked my story. Oh because, my gosh! Wow. Yeah. How so, old were you at this point? Like for context, twenty-six, twenty-seven. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's impressive. Okay. Can yeah. you talk a little bit more about raising money, the process of raising money? You yeah, because you, you, you gloss right over that, but like, that's a well, process. So, so here, so here's what it is. You know, first of all, people who raise money have to get used to something that young people uh, don't like very much. And that is the word. No classic you know, mm-hmm. I mean, in our world you know young people don't hear the word no very much and, and so you got to get used to hearing the word no because a lot of people are going to laugh at you they're going to tell jokes about you they're going to think you're an idiot until you make a lot of dough and then they're the ones that are all red-faced and embarrassed and that's just kind of how it works but um you know I, I went to this fax conference and i go to all these fax manufacturers like all the big company all the big electronic companies I said, look at this report that we have. And I showed him a sample. I said, this is software for fax machines. It makes fax machines do cool things. And I showed it to, I'm not kidding, 20 or 30 companies. And, and it was like, I was young. I was like very young. And, and they like patted me on the head and said, look, you look like you're a nice kid. Now get the hell out of here. You know? And I'm like, really? They, they just totally didn't get it. They did not get it at all. They didn't get what it could do. 
So I started calling newspapers and, and I changed my story. And so the new story was not software for fax machines, but rather uh, we have this uh, technology that could deliver a personal newspaper to every person, uh, every subscriber, every day. And, you know, and so you have to, so lesson number one is you have to adjust your story for your Frame it differently. Yeah. Like if they speak a different language, you need to speak their language, whatever their language is, whether it's a a little, literally a language or whether it's just their words, you gotta, you gotta put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. And I did a good job of that. And when I said a personal newspaper for every one of your subscribers every day, they went berserk. I mean, literally, I mean, I called a lot of them and they didn't all go berserk, but one particular one went berserk. They went crazy over this. <laughs> and that's all it takes. It only takes one. And I didn't understand this at the time, but they were very concerned because they heard, they started hearing rumors. And remember, these companies have 10,000 people working there. So they've got a lot of spies in the marketplace listening to things, bringing back information. And, and they, they, uh, they told me later after we had closed the deal, because I asked them why we did it. And they said, well, you know, we heard that uh, Pacific Bell was starting to talk about digital delivery of some stuff. And they didn't know what the digital delivery was going to be, but there was some digital thing that was starting to happen and they mm-hmm. didn't want to be left out. So they, so I come to them with what they perceived was a digital thing. Yeah. And they said, no matter what it costs, we want in on this deal. Because they wow. don't want to be behind. They want to stay they relevant. They want to be left out. And it turns out that thing was the internet. And it was amazing. And then I'll tell oh you God. further. So that was in 1992. And I ended up moving to New York. And I sold. I was selling my product on Wall Street. And I went to all the big brokerage firms on Wall Street. And, and I said, look at this thing that we have here. I came up with another story. And the story was, you know, uh, wouldn't it be cool to give your best customers a personal report every day on how they're doing with their stocks. And they go, I'm like, oh my God, our customers would love it. I said, well, what do you give them now? We give them like pens and mugs. I said, who cares about (laughs) pens and mugs? I said, what they care about is their stock prices. Why don't you give that to them every day? And they, so we had a couple of these giant firms that were fighting over it, believe it or not. Merrill Lynch was in a bidding war with securities. Oh my Uh, gosh. Prudential ended up becoming Wachovia, which was bought by Wells. And, and so these giant firms were bidding over this. And so I called my, my partners uh, in Los Angeles, the big company. And I said, listen, I said, I got a little bidding war going on here. Uh, what do you think we should do? And, 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 you know, and, and 26, 27 years old, I was kind of telling this group, this board of directors of like these, I don't know, 50 year old men, I don't know what they were, but they, <laughs> but they seemed old at the time. <laughs> now they're young to but, you. Well, yeah. Now, now, right. So uh, and, and a few of them, I'm still actually quite friendly with. I mean, these people are very successful, very, very powerful people. Wow. Um, and, and so we, we buttoned up the deal with Prudential and, and made that happen. And, and I ran that business for some years before I sold it to a fortune 500 company. Wow. So oh my goodness. It was, it, you know, listen, so I've, I've done what a lot of entrepreneurs try to do. And I advise some entrepreneurs on some of this stuff. And I, uh, you know, now I mean, I'm a professional investor. I mean, I invest in companies, real estate and and cryptocurrency, by the way. I think we should talk about crypto. Well, speaking of that and speaking of entrepreneurs and and investing from a young age, what what advice would you tell someone who is young, maybe the same age you were when you got started that wants to get started in investing, but has no idea how? Well, first of all, um, when we talk about investing, I'm not a financial advisor. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm a principal, I'm a deal maker. Okay. So a principal is like, I'm the main guy. I, financial advisors are all brokers. They're intermediaries right. and, and they're licensed to give financial advice. They tell people what to do. So you give them a thousand dollars and they help to put it into something. I don't, I don't do that. That's not what my business is. My business is taking much larger dollars from, uh, you know, from people who are a little further along in their life, typically 50, a hundred thousand, 200,000, you know, each person, we put it in the money into a bucket and then I go buy things with it. And, mm. and I've, you know, historically bought uh, real estate, uh, you know, or I've put together companies, but now what people are starting to ask me to do, and I haven't done it yet. I've been a little reluctant to do it is, Hey, would you put together a group of us so we could all buy crypto together? Because people who are my friends, and I hate to say it, even people who are your contemporaries, uh, they do not know what to do. They don't know which ones to buy. They don't know how to buy it. Well, it's all it's, confusing. Yeah. It's, I very, mean... it's, it's extremely clumsy. I mean, I've, I've been studying it for a long time and I'm finally starting to catch on to how to, how to make it happen. It, it's, and you know, it really is a complicated marketplace. Absolutely. I wow. mean, yeah, I don't understand. So I, I wish I could give advice to people. The only thing I would say is to make it a priority in your life uh, that you put some money aside, uh, you know, and, you know, if you have a job, put aside 10% or if you have uh, the opportunity to do things, put it aside. I, I mean, I'm a professional investor. It's a little different. Uh, and then get yourself a financial advisor to help you to understand it, because if money's not your thing, you really need to have somebody help you understand it. Uh, better, you know, and now if somebody is starting a company or somebody's raising money, you know, those are people I'd, I'd be happy to share my wisdom with and help them as best I can. But everybody else, uh, you know, if you're just looking to put some money into stocks or bonds, uh, you know, I, I can't really help with that. Totally. So can you talk a little bit about your business model, Bullseye Capital, how you make money? Is it through, you get a percentage? Is it, I know you do seminars. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, so my primary business, I run a fund and the fund, uh, you know, I get a percentage of all the profits from the fund. I get paid some fees from the fund. I mean, so there, so the fund has a whole structure and it's a little bit complicated. But about 10 or 12 years or 15 years ago, an executive from one of the big real estate companies uh, in, in the United States called me and said, hey, can we bring you out to Florida to show us how to raise capital to buy real estate? Because, you know, what I do, it's, it's Wall Street. I mean, and, you know, and, and nobody knows how this works. It's kind of like a, like a secret world about how money, how money gets raised, how things happen. And Wall Street's got this like giant fence around all the money in the country. It, they just do. And they get a percentage of like all the money all the time. And um, so it's, it's a kind of a complicated uh, deal, but, um, but I started, I did this one seminar for this giant brokerage firm uh, called Marks and Millichap. Uh, they're a commercial firm, which most uh, people haven't really heard of because they don't deal in commercial. They mostly deal with like their houses and that's residential. But uh, it was so successful that we uh, did it again and again and again. And, uh, we've had a couple thousand people, thousands of people have actually watched our videos and took our trainings and different things. And, uh, and we've probably built, you know, uh, I don't know, a couple of hundred syndications and funds and helped. We've helped a lot of people who want to, you know, organize these groups of people to make a lot of dough. And, wow. And, and You're like making it more accessible. In yeah, a way. too. I mean, there's a lot of people that have heard of it, uh, you know, but they don't understand it. They don't know how to get started with it. I was just on the phone with a guy just uh, half an hour ago. 
And, and he's like, you know, Joel, I know this is what I want to do. I don't have any idea how to get started. Uh, you know, he's a seasoned real estate broker. He's seen other people with pools of capital. Uh, he knows that the money doesn't belong to the person, but he doesn't have any idea where it came from. How did you get all this money? Right. How is it organized? I mean, like if you're walking around with like $5 million and it's not yours, it's like, well, where did it come from? Who put you in charge of all that money? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, what I kind of teach people is how to be a money manager, how to, how to be in charge of a big pool of capital. And, yeah. now, and the first question you have to be able to answer is if you had $5 million, what would you do with it? And if you can't think of anything to do with it, then this is not a good business for you. Right. <laughs> but there are a lot of people that say, oh my God, I, I'd buy real estate. I'd buy, I invest in businesses. I'd buy crypto. I'd buy this, 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 this. Those are people who probably would, uh, would be well-suited to think about raising a pool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's, you more noted... to it. there's more to it than that, but, but that's right. the start. Yeah. Simple for us. Thank you. Um, no, so you were talking about giving seminars and, and workshops. So I'm curious how your speaking fits into all of this. Does that help you grow your business? Is it well, a way of marketing or what do you use that for? Yeah. So, uh, you know, about 20 years ago, uh, you know, I mean, listen, as you, as you kind of get more seasoned in your career and you've got a lot of lessons, life lessons that you've learned, you just kind of want to start to share what you've learned. And some people share it with their children or their grandchildren, uh, you know, and, and other people who are maybe a little bit more, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit less shy. They want to share it with the world in different ways. Like you're yeah. sharing on the podcast, you might want to share it uh, to corporate audiences. And generally people who are speakers have learned something important in their life. They've had experiences mm -hmm. that, that are worth sharing. And, and people in audiences want to learn from what, what other people learn because that's how human beings learn. We learn from each other. Exactly. And so you want to share. And uh, you know, smart people learn from other people's mistakes. I mean, they don't make all their own mistakes themselves if, if they can help it. So they, uh, you know, so to bring somebody up there that said, look, I, I made this terrible mistake and here's what I learned from it. And hopefully you won't make the same mistake. Uh, that's a really valuable uh, lesson for people to learn. And so as, as I've kind of moved through my career, I've learned all this stuff uh, about, uh, you know, about investing, about, you know, building things, about doing things. And, and so I, I just wanted to share. Uh, but it's, it's speaking to corporate audiences is really different than my syndication and fund business. My syndication and fund business, those seminars are totally independent like corporate people don't cross over into that world right that's, that's not, a very specific type yeah, it's of very, audience and it just kind of kind of happened kind of organically it kind of grew and i've become very well known in that business but my corporate business is that listen i built a company and sold it to a fortune 500 i mean large companies they need to understand if they're going to get involved with little companies what makes them tick mm -hmm. right how do you how do you button those things up how do you buy those kind of companies and, and I just, as a professional investor, uh, you know, I just kind of understand how to find deals. And, and these corporate people are like, they're not in the business of finding deals. Like, how, right. where do you look? How do you examine or evaluate things? And how do you make sense of, of the world? Uh, that's where I have a lot of experience that's greatly valuable to them. And uh, also as a small business uh, operator and entrepreneur, I approach sales and marketing, uh, you know, from a totally different perspective. Uh, you know, we we kind of we kind of come at it maybe more from a gorilla perspective. You know, where we come out of the bushes and we we do do things in kind of around the corner and up the side, and we we do things in a funny way where 
large exactly, yeah. do things in a very predictable way because they're so big. That's what they do. And, and they, they all, you know, what happens is that they just kind of get thinking, they get like in a rut and they need people like us to kind of give them new ideas and get them out of their rut. Love it. Well, speaking of rut, um, with my last company, Joel, you and I met at your country club. It was one of my last meetings with you and I was super off and it was because my company was literally collapsing before my eyes. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. I didn't even bring it up to you, but I, I often wonder how you could have helped me and like what you could have done. So how can an entrepreneur who's struggling leverage investors or leverage someone like you? Well, you know, listen, investors are not always the right answer. First thing is you have to get some strategic advisory and, you know, and, and you did not reach out in time. And that's not a criticism. That's an objective assessment of what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, so that that's not, you know, I'm not about making people's feelings hurt. That's not what I'm about. I'm, I'm about totally. trying to help them, you know, and, and I remember very clearly what you told me which was that you were really, really strong in sales and marketing. You were not strong in operations and finance and, and your business crashed and burned because operations and finance just didn't get handled properly. So what I would have told you, and I think the great lesson for you that you can share with other people is that find your lane, figure out what you're great at and do it and find other people to help you to do what you're not great at. Right. And, and there's a certain, if you're not great at it, there's a certain amount of trust. Uh, you either got to have a partner or you got to have somebody that you really trust tremendously. And if you don't, you know, and if you don't trust them implicitly, like perfectly, have a third person keep an eye on everything. So, so, you know, so like- With all these checks. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you kind of need, sometimes you need to have a check in there. And uh, there've been times when two guys have been partners and they've asked me to be the tiebreaker vote if there's a, a stalemate. So, you know, that sometimes the lawyers or accountants or CPAs or advisors will do that because, you know, two people, you know, are doing things and then the third person listens. And, you know, based on my experience, I think that this is the better way to do it. And let's, let's go this way. And so you, you cast your vote. Um, so, you know, to me, uh, I, I might've said, listen, the business is salvageable. Let's go raise a little money. Let's go to a bank, get some, some lending. And there's different kinds of lending options that are out there. And let's try to do that. Uh, you know, I, I never looked at your books and records. I never saw what was going on. But depending on, you know, what the state of situation was, we might have been able to. You probably would have had a heart attack. <laughs> well, I, no, you know what, AJ, I would not have had a heart attack <laughs> because I, I've seen I've been inside of a thousand companies or more. I, I've, I've, so you, it's yeah. You know, it's like a doctor, you know, it's like uh, I've seen a lot of stuff, you know, and it's like it's not uh, nothing surprises. Your me. case is not that special, AJ. I, you know, it's, <laughs> as, much as, as much as like you're freaked out by it, uh, to me, it's 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 just a situation. I look at it and I'm pretty objective and I don't get all emotional about it. That's why mm. I don't have a heart attack. The reason I have a heart attack is it's not my problem. When I go to bed that night, it's not yeah. my problem. Yeah. You know, You're like, this is, <laughs> you yeah. sleep like a baby. <laughs> well, you know, you know what? So I look at your thing in the morning and I look at somebody else's thing in the afternoon and you know what I'm saying? I just, I look yeah. at stuff all day long. Now I may not want to invest in your deal because it may be kind of messed up, uh, but maybe it's fixable. Maybe it's not. And so you might have to get somebody to take a look at your stuff that, that helps you to know whether it's fixable or not. Okay, quick follow up on that. As far as numbers go, a lot of entrepreneurs are bad with the numbers. For me, they were very scary and I ignored them. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs when it comes to numbers and data? And it seems like that's your forte. 
Well, you know, listen, uh, we're, we're kind of a, a society or a culture of people who likes data. Uh, I, I personally, as much as I'm trained in numbers as a, as a young CPA, and I still am a CPA years later, but I haven't practiced in more than 30 years. But as much as I was trained in numbers, I don't really trust numbers that much. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, I find that um, it's very easy. You know, people, listen, we're living through this right now. Follow the science. You know, look at the numbers, you know. Do you know how easy it is to manipulate people with things like follow the science, follow the numbers? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's it's ridiculously simple. I mean, you know, people say the checks don't lie. That is ridiculous. You know, the, the checks lie even worse than anything because they're, they're it's a very manipulative logic. So you have to be very careful and you have to align yourself with people who can not only look at the numbers, but can read them and read through them and really understand what they say. And that you know, that's, that's a weird thing to say to somebody who's not a financial and numerical person, because they're sitting saying, I don't understand what it means to read the numbers. Like, like when I look at a set of numbers, it's like you, you read a narrative page of material. Uh, I, to me, it, it, it tells me a story and I, and I read it and I kind of get the story. Uh, other people who don't have that training don't get the story the same way. Um, and you just, you have to talk to accountants or you have to talk to uh, people who were CFOs of companies, chief financial offer, offer, uh, officers of companies, you have to talk to different kinds of people and get their sense about uh, who they are, what they're about, and 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 see who you connect with. Who do you vibrate with, and in, in in, in, yeah. where, where they can explain things to you that you can understand. One last thing, very frequently, uh, and this is this will resonate for you, AJ, is that your financial reports. Financial reports are historical documents. They're not necessarily predictors of the future. And I've always been a believer that you can, if you are a good seller, you can probably outsell your problem. And that actually might've been part of your problem is that you were a good seller and you were outselling you know, yourself. And after a while, it kind of catches up. It caught up to me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, but, you know, but if you understood the problem, you probably could have outsold the problem and corrected it. I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, if somebody looked at it and said, listen, man, you got you to gotta bring out another $400,000 and blah, blah, blah. And they gave you some specific direction. You probably could have done it, you know, just because you, you would know what to do and you need to change your pricing yeah. and you need to change whatever your buying patterns are, whatever they were. But, um, but here's the thing is that uh, there are leading indicators, which, is, which are future predicting, and there are lagging indicators, which are historical. Most financial data is lagging. It's, it's like looking at looking backwards in the rearview mirror. And there's a reason why the front window in the car is very big and the mirror is very small. You know, yeah. you spend more of your time Ooh, looking at the, the front window, you know, that uh, looking at your leading indicators. Now, what's a leading indicator? So, for example, uh, let's say people start buying luggage and the luggage industry starts going crazy. What do you think that's a leading indicator of? Maybe people starting to travel, you know, that they start so, flights. Yeah, there, there are lots of things that are predictive. If people start buying airplane tickets, that's probably predictive that the airlines are going to have a good next quarter. You know, I mean, so there, there are things that are forward looking. There are things that are backwards looking. And you have to kind of keep in mind, what are you looking at? Are you looking out the front mirror or, or are you looking out the front window? You know, and you have to kind of figure out what are you doing? 
Well, and that's perfect because in your biography, you describe yourself as a futurist. So is that sort of in line with, with that predictive thinking? Like what, what exactly is a futurist and what does that mean for you? Well, I, I'm, I, I've always spent my life doing uh, forward-looking things. So as a professional investor, I look at companies and I think, I wonder, is this company, how's it going to do in the future? And yeah, you I have to predict. About, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I make a lot of predictions. And one of the things that I do with companies is I help them predict their future and plan for it. Now, predict the future doesn't mean that I have a crystal ball and I can tell that a week from Tuesday it's going to rain. That that's not what a, that's not what a futurist does. You're not because, a psychic medium. No, no, of course oh, not. If that's what you need. That's what we thought you, gotta, you were. <laughs> I'm sure, although I'm sure there are plenty of people who would be happy to come on your show and and tell you that they can do that, but uh, that's not what that's not what legitimate futurism is about. Legitimate futurism is that. You know, let's say, for example, the pandemic happens. And in the pandemic, uh, people started staying home, working from home. And this is a very, very powerful trend that's really affecting people who are your age group. This is, I mean, you guys are really defining this whole oh, new, totally, new yeah. Um, but let's say, for example, uh, people start working from home. So I asked the question, I, I always call it SWIT. So what's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that, I could be less cars on the freeway. Okay, great. And then I asked the follow-up nice. question, who wins, who loses? Well, if there's less cars on the freeway, consumers, they're winners because less traffic, it's awesome. Uh, the government could be good because they don't have to build more freeways. You know, that's good, you know, because it's expensive. Oil but companies loses? losing. You know, of course, gasoline companies could lose because they're not going to sell as much gasoline. Car uh, cities, companies, maybe. Car companies, maybe they don't need to sell as many cars. Uh, cities Restaurants in the cities. Okay, well, we'll yeah, we'll right, we'll get to that, you know, because we'll talk about, you know, we'll get to that in a second. But let's say that uh, cities they're not going to write as many traffic tickets because there's not going to be as many cars, and and then let's say that half as many people are working downtown because half of them are now home, so companies don't need all the real estate. And the impact of that, of course, is only half the building is going to be full, and that has an impact on real estate, real estate brokers has an impact on the restaurants. So as you kind of go down this path, you can kind of think about who wins, who loses, the impact of things. And you can really start making some projections about what's going to happen. And companies can start making predictions. Now, are they going to get it right? They're not going to get it right every time. But I promise you that we can get pretty close. Unless, unless a catastrophic, catastrophic event like a pandemic happens and then all bets are off. and Nobody can predict that. Right. That's totally different. Well, speaking of the pandemic or what has changed, I'm, I'm curious what your typical day is like and has it changed like before and after? Have you pretty much stayed consistent in what you do on a daily basis? Well, my, my life has changed uh, radically because uh, I lost the vision in one eye last year. And, and so uh, that was a tremendous thing. That had nothing to do with pandemic and had nothing to do with me getting sick. I just woke up and I got a detached retina and got, went in for surgery. And I ended up having five surgeries over four months. So you guys were oh my all gosh. locked in during the pandemic. I was having a different kind of problem. Um, and, and so I wasn't able to sit at my desk. I wasn't able to work. I wasn't, I mean, all these things I couldn't do. Wow. So, so what happened for me really was that, um, I would be at my desk like maybe one or two or eventually three hours a day. And, and I was feeling really guilty about it. Like my generation of people, like we're supposed to work. Like, like I think it's a little different now. I think people have a little bit lighter attitude about this, but 
I kind of grew up in a time where it's like you, you work, that's like what you do, you know? Right. That's it what just, you're defined it, by. That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just what you do. And so I was sitting feeling guilty. Now I'm in a mastermind with some really high level people. And I said that, I said to the group, I said, I just, I feel so guilty. Like, I'm like, I know I, I literally cannot be at my desk. Like I cannot do it because uh, I just, I can't, my eyes aren't working. The one I was, was tired and the other, I didn't work. And it, it, it just, I was, I was dizzy and I was having balance problems. Yeah, I can't everything. even imagine. I mean, imagine closing one eye. It's very, it's very disorienting. And, and what I've always got to keep hearing is that your eyes are part of your brain and you know, your brain kind of gets frozen after you're about 25 and, and the retraining, it's really hard. And, but I've been working really, really hard to do that. And I've, I've come about 95%, which is really great. Wow. Nice. But, but so here, so I said to my mastermind, I said, I just, I feel so guilty. Like I can't work, but I just, I feel like I should be working. Like, I just like, I, like, well, so they said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I sit in my man cave in, in the yard and I like, I'll have a cigar or I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, be listening to a podcast or I'll put notes in my phone about some ideas that I might have. And, and so somebody in the mastermind said, and sometimes life-changing things come in a single sentence. And this one woman in the mastermind, she's so brilliant and she's like a, a therapist kind of person. And she said, then that's your work. Your work is being creative, sitting in your man cave. Love that. And in like one uh -huh. sentence, I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's so, so you know, what's different now, Caitlin is, uh, my calendar, I changed my whole calendar. People can only make appointments with me Monday through Thursday, nine o'clock in the morning to noon and the rest of the day and Fridays are creative time where I don't take phone calls. And you know what? I, I get just as much work. Done, I love it. But love I, it. but the rest of my time I spent writing, I spent thinking, uh, it's not that I won't take oh my a phone God, call. I need to do that. Are you yeah, smoking it, more it, cigars? Um, not too much, but, um, but you know, but I, I just, I, that time is really for myself. I just use that time to write keynotes and to think about new ideas. It's and... so much better to focus. Cause you're not like, Oh, you have to go into meeting mode. You have to take a phone call. Yeah. Like you're at least you're right there. Yeah. I, I, love I, I really, so, uh, this, this incredible tragedy in my life where I lost one eye, uh, you know, which is the weirdest thing to lose an eye. I mean, I, I have like, like 10% vision. So I kind of, double vision. And by the way, uh, you know, I wear a patch most of the time because uh, with double vision, most people, one is enough. <laughs> yeah. It like would make you dizzy, I feel like. Although Caitlin, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, one eye and double vision with you, uh, you know, you can't get too much. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin's a looker. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Great. For sure. Yeah. So, uh, but every, everybody else, uh, you know, one is enough. That's it. So <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Um, That's but hilarious. Anyway, um, so I, it really, you know, I, I kind of really turned that really tragic situation into, into something that has been so much better for me. And, but I, and I think that's what winners do. Winners turn really, really rough situations into something better. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and losers just wallow in it. Yeah. They and, just you know, pity and, I, and yeah. I'm not a victim kind of person. Like I, I'm yeah. not telling you, I didn't have a couple of bad days in, in a year, you know, but for the most part, I didn't sit around going, why this happened to me? Well, what difference does it make? You know, I mean, it's like, would I rather have it, have it happen to you? No. Uh, I mean, it, it happened. It's like, that's not going to change anything. It, it, exactly. It happened. Like, like, let's just get on with it and let's learn how to deal with it. 
And it took a long time because I, you know, I could hardly couldn't walk. I was bumping into things. I tripped. I fell down. Wow. I, I had no idea, Joel. Yeah, it, it was it was rough, really, really rough. But um, but some really great things have come out of it, and and I'm I'm doing so much better. You know, I, I mean, yeah. it just it, it's listen. I I wish that I had two eyes and they were both working, and you know, I wish I had my regular life. But you know what? I don't, and and I've really made something great out of this. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. That's amazing. Okay, so you are a futurist. What are some trends you foresee that entrepreneurs can? You know, the, the most the most important trend that affects the people who are uh, in your audience are uh, is this whole work from home deal. This whole work from home thing. Here, here's what's interesting about this. You know, in in ten years from now or twenty years from now, uh, people are going to be working three days a week, and they're going to be working from mm-hmm. home and they're not going to be driving as much and they're going to do, you know, they're going to have a schedule more like yours. Well, maybe, maybe they will. Uh, and, and, and they're going to kind of take it for granted that this is just how it is. And, and, you know, and in 20 years, there'll be young people like yourselves doing podcasts or whatever they do at that time. And, you know, and they'll be going, yeah, it's, isn't it great that this is how it, how it is. And then, uh, then old people like you at that time. <laughs> Love it. Can't oh wait. boy, we're going to be old. old you know, you're going to come on the podcast and you're going to say, you know, it always wasn't like this. It wasn't like this all the time. You know, they're going to go, really, what was it like? Back in my day. You know, when when dinosaurs roamed the earth, what was it like? (laughs) We had these things called podcasts instead of uh, holograms or whatever. And and you're going to say, you know, people used to work five days a week, 40 hours a week, and they used to drive into an office and they're going like, wow, that's amazing. But here's the thing is that we're living sort of through this earthquake that changes the landscape and you know and it's very tumultuous it's very complicated to live through uh, this, this kind of change companies don't know should we do five days four days three days no days yeah uh, you know and, and and different companies and it's this very complicated thing and companies are afraid to make rules because they're afraid they're going to lose their employees uh, and then there's other firms like Goldman, Goldman Sachs on Wall Street. That's like, if you can go to a restaurant in New York, you can come in the office. We want everybody back and we're going to do it the old way. And if you want to work here, that's how it is. So then other other large banks are saying, well, uh, you know, uh, we, we'll let you uh, live in the Hamptons and work uh, remote. And so they're kind of using it as an employee benefit and they're, they're using it as a recruiting tool. So different companies are kind of trying to figure out what they want to do. And... Uh, and it's very unclear about what's going to happen. Yeah. And and it's this is probably, you know, the, the thing that to me, uh, you know, I think a lot of older people like myself, I would prefer to work remote. That would be better for me because right. older people have different kinds of responsibilities. Maybe they have to take care of children or pets or grandparents or or whatever their job is. Plants. Plants, <laughs> you know, whatever. Plants? Younger people, on the other hand, uh, you know, going into an office is kind of a social outlet for a lot of younger so people. True. Where a lot of a lot of younger people make their friends, meet their spouses, or 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 just whatever they do, and then they go for for drinks with friends after work. So, different age groups of people have different kind of needs that get met yeah. by work. Besides needing the money, that they they use work for other things too. Right, and and so we're living through this very complicated time. But one thing is for sure, uh, there have been substantial polls done on LinkedIn and other places, and these are not binding polls where companies have to call follow the lead. But what they've kind of found out is that 94% of the people, 94, have said they want to do either 
uh, full, uh, full work from home or hybrid. So have some form of let's be a little bit at home. Right. You know, 94% of the people and only, only 6% of the people said, no, we want to go back the way it was. Wow. That that's really telling. Yeah. I think I mean, that's... So companies are going to have to make some adjustments and if they, uh, you know, now cutting down to four days doesn't do anything that, that that's worthless because they can't, the company won't get any benefit, but if they go down to three days or two and a half days, then they only need half as much real estate. Yeah. So right. all of a sudden they can That start actually being, changes things. That yeah. changes the landscape. Now, the other thing that companies have to do is if they expect you to use your uh, kitchen table for uh, work, they need to pay you something. I mean, companies are going to need, you know, in the pandemic, it was an emergency, but, but if it goes on any longer, uh, you know, Hey, listen, we, we're going to give you another $500 a month, you know, rent a bigger house or, or whatever, and you know, set aside some space. Here's a thousand dollars to buy the right kind of equipment so that you're set up properly at home. I mean, companies are going to have to participate because they're going to be getting a substantial benefit mm-hmm. from this. The other thing is you have to remember that working from home requires a lot of maturity. You have to be a very mature self-discipline, person. self-discipline, uh, where you, you, you know, where you say, look, this is my job and I'm going to do that job. The truth is that really well-disciplined people there, they do more than their job. They go, they go beyond what's expected of them uh, as opposed to people who are less mature, probably say I'm, I'm doing less or, you know, the hell with that company. I don't feel like doing uh, my job or whatever they say, but right. you know, so it's not, this is not for everyone. And yeah. That doesn't mean no, that, every and worker, right. Not every worker is going to be a, a virtual worker. Right. Yeah. Lots of workers can. And, and let's think about the impact of virtual workers. Let's say that you're a, a company and you're looking for salespeople. Well, ordinarily, you'd be looking for salespeople or a sales manager within 20 miles of your place. Now, if you're, if you're in a city like Los Angeles, that's, that's not too bad. But if you're in a smaller city, you know, your pool of potential people is kind of small, right? It's not, not a great pool. So, you know, but if you could now reach out for the whole country and let people telecommute, uh, you can get the best people in right. New York. Yeah, your your pool is much larger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that makes sense. So I I have a kind of a little bit of a different question for you. What if any? What failures have you had along the way? Any regrets that you have, or like sacrifices you feel like you've had to make? How has this impacted your life being an entrepreneur? Maybe in not such a positive way. Yeah, well, there, listen, uh, not everything I've done has uh, turned to gold. You know, I, some some things have turned to crap, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's to be very fair. Uh, you know, I, I would say probably uh, out of many dozens of things that I've been involved with, plenty of them haven't worked out. And you have to just be of the mindset that you're going to throw a bunch of crap against the wall and some of it's not going to stick. And that's just how it is. That's how and it is. You, and you have to try to limit your losses and say no as fast as you can. And, and, and unwind those deals, you know, and, and that's part of the reason why you don't want to raise money for every single thing, because, uh, you know, you don't want to lose other people's money and you have to be very careful about that. So you want to hold on to your deal as long as you can before you raise capital uh, for a couple of reasons. One, to make sure that it has some legs, uh, two, to make sure you don't burn other people's uh, bridges. And third, the, the longer you wait to raise your money, the more stock you're going to control, because whoever puts their money in is going to take less of you if you're a little bit more developed. So uh, that's been one thing. There have been uh, plenty of uh, losses that, have, uh, that I've learned from. Um, 
probably the biggest mistake that I made as I look at this. After I sold my company in, in uh, 1995, I probably should have retained a PR firm at that time to make me famous that I sold my company. And I didn't, I, I probably would have had an earlier trajectory, uh, you know, into, into a career in speaking and other things had I done that earlier. So, you know, but I didn't really understand the concept of celebrity and PR and branding and some of those things, uh, maybe the way that I should have. So that would have been a really, a really good lesson uh, back then. Yeah. And, uh, so I think I've kind of made up for it, but it's taken a long time. Okay, uh, we're wrapping up here soon, but uh, you, you sort of mentioned um, entrepreneurs pitching to investors. Any advice you have? Well, you know, listen, if you watch Shark Tank, that's kind of where everybody kind of learns this. The, the formula is sort of uh, what problem do people have? And then how are you going to solve it? How are you going to monetize it? That's kind of what you got to do. And I, I have a formula not necessarily for pitching, but uh, for getting someone's attention. And I call it 10-1-10. In 10-1-10, it says that you have exactly 10 seconds to get somebody's attention so that they will agree to give you one, a 10, one to 10 more minutes of their time. 10-1-10. So 10 seconds oh, to good. get one to 10 minutes. And you have to blurt something out that is so compelling, so interesting, so fascinating, uh, so intriguing that a person says, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more. Right. And, and get that and so more. For example, yeah. when I called up uh, newspaper companies and I said, I have a technology that can deliver a, uh, an individual newspaper to every one of your subscribers every day. They were like, really? Tell me a little more about that. When somebody mm -hmm. asks, asks that question, when they say, you know, tell me more, can I learn more? When they ask, when they express interest, all of a sudden they're listening. When you first blurt something out, they're not really listening. They're, they're doing you a courtesy. You got about 10 seconds, but they're not really paying attention. Now the person said, really? Uh, would you please tell me about that? Yeah. All you need sudden, to get really good at the 10 second pitch. Yeah. You got to, you got to nail the 10 seconds and that 10 seconds applies in everything of your life. You know, like, um, you know, when I speak, uh, one thing we didn't talk about, I was a, uh, I was a former, uh, blackjack player. I was a, a professional card player when I was young. And, and so now I build in my keynotes. Part of, part of my, my presentation is that, you know, hey, listen, here are things that I learned as a, as a card player. I mean, I'm, now I invest in companies and cryptocurrency and real estate. And people wonder, gee, you sound like a gambler. Well, funny enough, I started out as a gambler. <laughs> and, and so I've kind like, of- Like, that's why. <laughs> so, you know, what are the lessons that I took with me from playing cards? And I actually teach the, the audience- how to count a deck of cards. And, and there's lessons yeah, that's about, cool. how, about how that works out. So, so you know, I'll say to somebody that, uh, you know, that I can do it. And then people say, oh my God, that's so cool. You know, and they, they, they want to have it and they want their audience to learn about it because they just think there's a cool factor. And it's one of those things that people remember a year later. They don't remember anything else except, oh, you're that guy who played the cards. You did the yeah, thing. you need and, that hook. Like yeah. why mm -hmm. are people going to remember them. you? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a hook. And so, that 10 second thing, that 10, one, 10, you got to have a hook. You got to have something really cool that people totally. can, can, can bite into. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. So last question that we ask all of our guests here on the 40 under 40 podcast, do you believe that entrepreneurs are born or bred? Like, can you become an entrepreneur or are you born this way? <laughs> I, I think that there's a certain, 
there's a certain uh, character that's born that can be made better over time. So they're born, uh, but they can be improved through their environment. You know, I mean, so it's mm -hmm. kind of a combination, but I think that there's something that we have inside of us that's just there. Uh, yeah. and, you know, and, and that's not to say if you don't have it, you can't ever do it. Right. But I just think that there are some of us that have a crazy risk tolerance uh, that we need to, to manage, by the way, because that gets in our way because we're a little crazy. Uh, but I also yeah. think I also think that AJ knows the, the thing about entrepreneurs is that we look at the world in a different way. We're definitely not conformists. And you know, as as a youngster, uh, you know, I, my dad would say something, and I would say the opposite. He said, "Every time I say black, you say white." I said, "But I don't do it on purpose." It's like that. I just I see the world differently than other people, and he always thought it was a bad thing. But that turned out to be my best thing. Right. And uh, like, you know, like, and, and, and I bet you a lot of parents punish their children for, for being, uh, you know, kind of out of whack and not conforming and not, you know, but let's not punish that. Let's celebrate that. Let's make that be the thing that, uh, you know, when a kid is different, those different people are the people who move the rest of us forward. You know, different people uh, are, are responsible for new things. People who are the same are workers. People who are different are leaders. And, and we really need to celebrate those people and encourage yeah, those people. It's true. Uh, that's how I that's celebrate how I the differences. Yeah. Love it. Joel, where can people find you? Uh, the best place is to go to uh, joelblock.com. Uh, if they want my contact Simple information, uh, they can text the word Joel, my name, Joel to 85,000. And that's it. That's I mean, easy. Uh, right, awesome. I think, I think hang, on, hang on a second. No, no, wait, wait. Let me just double check because it's it's a new thing I just got. Let me just double check that I got that. Uh, <laughs> You're like, I gave the wrong number. I, I don't want to make a mistake on this because it's a, it's a new it's a new service. There's some new guys that are that have built this new thing. I think it's very very smooth. Oh, it's not. It, it's eighty eight five hundred eight eight five hundred. Text Joel eight eight five hundred. It'll give you, you know, all the contact info and everything about me. Love it. But if you want to learn about me, you want to see some of my videos, you want to hear my podcast, uh, text the word Joel to 88500. Yeah. Love your podcast. Love your videos. Joel. Yeah. Thank thanks you for so coming. much, Joel. We had so much more to talk about, but we could only get to a bit. We're so already over. We, pre we well, appreciate you know, we'll, your time. We'll, we'll Thank you it, so much. We'll save it for next time. Yeah. Yes, for you sure. You're a great guest. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. We appreciate it. Oh, I knew this was going to be a great one. I know. And I feel like I have, this keeps happening. I have so many more questions and we barely scratched the surface. I know. We'll, we'll bring more people on when we run out of guests. Yeah, <laughs> we can bring them on again. No, he was great though. I mean, I, I learned a lot. Same. All right, folks. Well, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the 40 Under 40 podcast with Caitlin Cromet and AJ McQuarrie. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort, and we'll catch you in the next episode.